0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And with the start of the new year, it's that time again. That time when we all vow to eat better, to exercise, to save more money, and generally to be the best we can be. Which is why we're dedicating our show today to resolutions. Do a quick Google search and you'll find a bunch of studies about how subpar we all are when it comes to keeping our resolutions. Somewhere between 60 and 90 percent of us eventually toss out the commitments we made in January. But on today's program, we're going to get some inspiration from people we've met on past editions of the show, all of whom are working hard to meet their goals, often in the face of some pretty tough odds. We'll hear from the family who strive to find joy in the everyday, despite their son's rare genetic condition.
1: When he smiles and he starts waving at people, they have to wave back. And we'll talk with the D.C. student who had to
0: recommit herself to her studies.
2: I do like being a good student, and when I graduate, I want to be able to say I was in the top five.
0: Plus, we'll hear from the woman whose resolve may have saved
3: some of D.C.'s historic neighborhoods. People thought their homes were going to be lost. People thought they were going to be kicked out of where they lived. That's what caused this much, much more than thinking of aesthetics. But first... I think
0: many of us assume that with the whole New Year's resolution thing, if we commit to doing something and then honor that commitment, we'll be happier people. But right now, if I were to ask you how happy you are, not like how happy you are right this minute, but how happy you are in general, on the whole, how would you respond?
3: I think I'm pretty happy. I
4: could be happier. Very happy. Very happy. I'm very happy. In general, I'd say I'm very happy.
2: I won't say I'm necessarily happy, but I will say I'm hint for the most part.
4: Well,
0: in May 2013, we met a guy who's been studying how people answer that very question for nearly 40 years. If you could just um, introduce yourself and let us know who you are.
4: John Robinson, Department of Sociology at University of Maryland.
0: And Robinson has been looking at that happiness question as it relates to two other questions, both about how people view their time. First,
4: would you say that you always feel rushed, only sometimes feel rushed, or almost never feel rushed? And the second? How often do you have time in your hands that you don't know what to do with? Most of the time, some of the time, none of the time.
0: Putting the happiness question aside for just a second, it's interesting to note that, according to Robinson's analysis, the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as always feeling rushed actually went down between 2004 and 2010.
4: And that was really a surprise to me, particularly with all this new technology that we have, which is very time-demanding. I know I have a hard time dealing with it. It raises my blood pressure.
0: And something else that surprised Robinson is what happens when you bring the happiness question in. According to his research, the people who report being the happiest, about 8 to 12 percent of Americans,
4: say they almost never feel rushed and they do not have time in their hands they don't know what to do with.
0: And Robinson isn't the only happiness researcher intrigued by this finding.
4: I was surprised to find that people who had a lot of excess time
5: on their hands reported being less happy. I would have thought that the relationship would go the other way around.
0: Eric Agner teaches philosophy, economics, and public policy at George Mason University.
5: But I guess that people who have leisure and who fill it with meaningful things um, tend to be happier, although they report they don't have excess time.
0: Which makes sense, right? Though Agner, who studies happiness from a more philosophical point of view, not sociological, says he does kind of wonder how people are interpreting this question of having time on their hands.
5: So somebody who spends six hours watching television a day, would he or she say that he's got excess time on his hands? Well, you know, I would think that he or she does, but the person who does that might nonetheless feel like he or she's got a busy day.
0: Actually, it's funny that Eric Engner should mention television, because in a separate study John Robinson conducted, he found an interesting correlation between TV watching and happiness levels.
4: The more people watch television, the less happy they are.
0: Is it because they're seeing these beautiful people on TV and and they just can't be that gorgeous and Uh, famous and uh, wealthy?
4: It would be nice to think that. (laughs) 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 No, I think it's just the fact that television is an activity that people choose to do when they don't have anything else to do. That probably defines the kinds of people who have time in their hands they don't know what to do with.
0: Which brings us back to our seeming paradox, the fact that our busiest Americans seem to be the most blissful.
4: I think it has to do a lot with control. If you don't feel rushed, it means that means you're feeling some control. I think if you feel always rushed, generally I think that says that there's outside pressures that are impinging on how you feel. And the same thing is true with regard to having time in your hands you don't know what to do with. If you have your life scheduled in such a way that you have them under control and you're not doing nothing while just waiting for things to happen, That seems to be a combination which leads to quite a jump in people's perceived happiness.
0: And if we want to talk about a combination which leads to quite a drop in people's perceived happiness. You figured out that the least happy group was the people who had a lot of excess time.
4: And who felt always rushed. It's those two conditions.
0: It's pretty much a Goldilocks thing. You don't want too much excess time. You don't want too little. You don't want too much rushing. You don't want too little. You want it to be just right. Or as Robinson wrote in a recent issue of Scientific American, happiness means being just rushed enough.
4: Yes. That may be a bit uh, commonsensical, but it is the case. So the takeaway line is, is don't hurry, be happy. (laughs)
0: To read more on John Robinson's study on happiness and hurrying, visit our website, metroconnection.org. <laughs> Our next story looks at this idea of being happy from a very different direction. It's about a nine-year-old Maryland boy whose genetic disorder causes him to have a consistently happy demeanor. Jake Slater has Angelman syndrome, which affects one in every 12,000 to 20,000 people. Lauren Ober visited the Slater family in Jefferson, Maryland, and brings us this story.
1: (laughs) My name's Michelle Slater. I am the mother of Jake Slater, and he is nine years old, and he has Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome is a genetic disorder where Jake is missing part of chromosome 15, and that presents itself in many ways. In his case, he has seizure disorder, reflux, learning disabilities, and movement disorder. He has uh, difficulty walking. He is nonverbal, but he's able to communicate a little bit. It's getting better now with the use of the iPad, Um, but we work with him daily on every facet of his life, from walking to feeding to communicating his wants and needs. You want to go outside now? (laughs) Jake, do you want to go outside? Clap if you want to go outside. Angelman kids are very happy. They have a happy disposition. I don't know what causes that. I don't think the doctors know what causes that. There's something with that chromosome that affects your disposition. If we knew what that was, I'm sure they'd be capturing that and somehow doing a drug to get all these unhappy people happy again. And I'm sure maybe in the future they'll figure it out. But for right now, all they know is that piece of the chromosome has some effect on your disposition. And in in their case, it's that it makes them happy. And I don't... I can't explain it, but I think it's great. And it's actually been an amazing thing because I don't think that if he wasn't happy or if he was unhappy all the time, I think I'd be in a much more of a state because I think he brings happiness to us by his smiles and his laughter. When he laughs, he makes other people laugh. Laughter is contagious. Everybody knows that. And so when he smiles and he starts waving at people in the store and they look at him, they have to wave back. And if they don't, he kind of scowls like, what's wrong with that person? Jake was not hitting all of his milestones. He was moving further and further behind. He wasn't sitting up and doing the things he should do. We, we went to the geneticist. She was pretty sure he had Angelman syndrome based on one other case that she had. So we tested him and then we found out later at 12 months old that he had Angelman syndrome. The internet is your best and worst friend because the first thing you do, and the doctor tells you not to, don't go on the internet and read all about this because you're going to get freaked out. But of course, the first thing I did was I went on the internet and I read all about them. And of course, we were we were pretty devastated. It's still hard, but when you see these kids, they're so awesome and they're so much fun. <laughs> what do you see? You see the swing? Do you want to go in the swing? I think when you grow up and you say, I'm going to have children, I'm going to have a family, they're going to go to school, they're going to go to college, they're going to get married. All those things, I think, is what you perceive to be a happy life. And then when you find out that that's not exactly going to happen the way you thought, then you go through this period of, oh, woe is me, my kid's not going to do X, Y, Z. And then you start to realize, you know what? Jake is so happy, and he's such a great kid that I'm so glad he's in our life because he's brought to us so many things that we wouldn't have ever recognized and so many people that we've met, and the things that we do on a daily basis are totally different than what we had done if we had lived in this little bubble of the perfect world. (laughs) So exciting, I know, swing time is exciting. I constantly say, really, is that going to make you upset today? Really, you know, in the big picture of life, is that a big deal? And I think it just keeps you grounded to know that, you know, you have this this little boy. He struggles daily, but he keeps a smile on his face. And you're thinking, well, if he can do it, then I can definitely do it.
0: That was Michelle Slater talking about her 9-year-old son, Jake. Their story was produced by Lauren Ober. We have more information about Angelman syndrome, along with photographs of Jake and his family, on our website, metroconnection.org. for a break now but when we get back one family's resolution to scale back on gadget time
6: the first week they were just indignant they were slamming things and storming around the house and it was really like an addiction
0: it's just ahead right here on Metro Connection on WAMU
6: 88.5
0: WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of
3: environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: Rebecca Shear, welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're digging into the archives and bringing you stories related to a very big buzzword right about now, resolutions. In the case of this next story, we're talking about a resolution to cut down on technology. A recent study found that British adults spend four hours a day on their gadgets, and presumably many of us can give the Brits a run for their money, what with all our online shopping and gaming and tweeting and whatnot. But last winter, one D.C. woman vowed to pare down her digital footprint and she brought her kids in on the experiment. Emily Berman brings us
7: their story. So I need to start the story with a confession. My name is Emily Berman, and I am generally not more than three feet away from my phone at any given time. In the shower, while I'm sleeping, while I'm running, I am almost always on email, Twitter, and otherwise internet accessible. And even at 10 years old, Eric Chekon understands my tech obsession.
6: It was kind of... In my routine, I wake up, I went on Wizard101, I had breakfast, and then I went to school, and I came back, I was on the computer, I did my homework, I was on the computer.
7: So it sounds like it would fill up almost every minute of free time you had. Yeah, pretty much. But it doesn't anymore. So we are
6: we are going up the stairs.
7: This is where I've hidden the technology. Yindra Chekhan is a single mother to Eric and his brother Kaya, and we're in her row house on Capitol Hill.
6: So my children don't know about this place.
7: She crouches down and reaches into the back corner of her closet.
6: iPad. I have another
7: iPad. I took out the Wii. Here's the iPod. Kaya, who's 12, tells me he knows exactly where the gadgets are. Back of the closet is, like, the most obvious mom hiding spot in the world. But he and Eric, they're not going in there. This time, they said, their mother was dead serious.
6: This began when I walked in. I said, please bring in two bags of food for your lunch.
7: She had just made an evening run to Safeway to get sandwich ingredients.
6: Kaya said, I'm not going to
7: do that. Sitting on his iPad.
6: And my son Eric said, yeah, yeah, mom, you know, in a few minutes, I can't right now, I'm playing.
7: I said, oh, no. This wasn't the first time a screen had taken priority over helping their mom. I said, you are bringing the groceries in, and as soon as they brought them in, I said, and you've lost all your
6: technology until I tell you it's back. They had no idea what was going to hit them. (laughs)
7: No iPads, no computer, no television, no Wii. These were the pillars of their young adulthood. The first week, Yandra says, they were slamming doors and storming around the house. It was really like an addiction. You, know, you could watch the addiction releasing its hold a bit. To help her sons along in their recovery, Yindra devised a star chart to gauge when they're being helpful and kind.
6: I went around the house on Saturday And I cleaned the bathrooms, and my brother vacuumed.
7: That got them two stars apiece. But it doesn't take much to get a star taken away.
6: They've gotten to look at how unhelpful they are, because when they lose stars, like, why am I losing a star? I'm like, you just hit your brother for the sixth time.
7: They need 50 stars to get their technology back for one hour a day. Two months into their star counting, Eric has 33 and Kaya has 44.
8: I
5: propose this intervention to a lot of different families, and most of the time, families avoid using this as an intervention until it's their last resort.
7: Mark Sweeney is their family therapist.
5: The Xbox can be a great babysitter. The Internet can engage a kid and and kind of make their job as a parent a little bit easier.
7: Less technology means less free time for parents, and kids, he says, will exploit that.
5: The kids for many, many days will be in doubt whether you, you as a parent will be able to hold on. They will test. For those families that, that hold on for, for weeks and then months, wow, you can start to see other parts of the family improve. Communication, problem solving, it's, it's remarkable.
7: In the past couple of months, Kai has been taking apart old computers in his bedroom.
5: I'm just trying to take it
0: apart.
7: Eric sits on the floor surrounded by Legos.
6: Uh, I'm trying to build a bank.
7: And when he's not there, you can also find him running around outside.
6: Now I've kind of realized that there's a lot of other fun things to do. Going to the park kind of now feels nicer than staying inside and sitting in front of the computer for an hour.
7: We'll play cards. We'll play Clue. Yindra is an active Buddhist and says letting go of technology is a way to practice mindfulness in their home.
6: They are more respectful more often. They are kinder more often. They are more helpful more often. Parents just shouldn't be afraid to do this. Children will be mad at you. But ultimately, it's teaching them so much
7: about being here. Kaya, on the other hand, finds this new lifestyle
0: A little bit more boring.
7: And with just a few more stars to earn, he's counting down the minutes until he and his iPad are reunited for one blissful hour a day. I'm Emily Berman. Has your family ever
0: resolved to go a little bit off the grid? How'd your experiment in tech free living go? Assuming you're not still tech-free, you can reach us via email at metro at WAMU.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMUMetro. The person we'll hear from next knows plenty about making resolutions. After a life-changing incident that could have ended everything for her, she resolved to work even harder and succeed in school. Her name is Sharnika Glasby, and Kavitha Cardoza brought us her story back in May as she was finishing up her studies at Phelps Architecture, Construction, and Engineering High School in Northeast D.C.
9: 18-year-old Shanika Glaspie is one of those students who squeezed every moment out of high school. She was in model UN, Shakespeare scholars, and choir. She was an athlete, taking part in softball, volleyball, and track. And she was an honor roll student, maintaining a 3.7 GPA.
2: I do like being a good student, and when I graduate, I want to be able to say I was in the top five, or I was number one, which I was in the beginning of the year.
9: Shanika was the top student in her school, but then...
2: The incident happened.
9: The incident is Shanika's shorthand for the day she was shot on her way to school a few months ago.
2: It was a normal day. I was rushing out the house, and I'm walking down the street, my iPod and my phone in my hand changing the song.
9: She was a few blocks from her home, close to the Anacostia metro station, when a man suddenly came up to her.
2: He's wearing a mask, and he's like... Give me your bag. It didn't really register. And he shoots me. All I hear is a really loud, just popping sound.
9: She describes feeling a searing sensation. The bullet hit just above her knee and went through her leg. There was blood.
2: My whole pants leg was soaked. I'm like, am I going to die from this? (laughs) Like, it was just so much
9: Shanika limped toward her house.
2: When the police came, I was still crying. When I was in the ambulance, I was still crying. They were trying to talk to me and calm me down. But it was like I couldn't really get a hold of myself.
9: Shanika says this happens a lot in her neighborhood. She just didn't think it would happen to her on her way to school, wearing her uniform. She missed a month of school as her leg healed. Some worries, like, will you be able to see the scar when I wear a skirt, faded after a few weeks but some wounds are still with her.
2: It'll make you paranoid all the time. It's like, I will never go back to the time where I can just walk down the street blasting my music or with my iPod in my hand. You're always looking behind you. You're always wondering if the person sitting next to you is going to do something bad. It's like really stressful.
9: Her schoolwork suffered when she missed weeks of class.
2: I haven't been able to come back with the grades I have gotten in the past. Like, I still get A's and B's, but there's an occasional C that's just killing me. And it's because I don't understand the lessons I've missed. And, like, in math, it really set me back. Plus, other challenging classes like my digital electronic class and my engineering class set me back in those, so I have to catch up in those, too. If It was like, when did we learn this? <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, yeah, it was that class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was out. <laughs>
9: Shanika wants to be an engineer.
2: In my family, most people have not gone above high school education. They got a job right after high school, or they tried college and they got pregnant or something, and I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be dependent on, like, the government, welfare, or food stamps. I've seen that look of defeat. I don't want that life. I want a better life.
9: A better life for Shanika doesn't mean fancy clothes or expensive meals or exotic vacations.
2: I want to be able to go to school. I want to be able to say I've got my master's degree and have, like, a awesome job that's, like, that I, you know, won't be able to get fired <laughs> because I have, like, good education. Like, I want to be able to know that I can pay my bills and have a good house and maybe a fancy car. <laughs>
9: Shanika says she has a big, supportive, extended family who have been there for her when she faced other challenges, a mother on drugs, bouncing between relatives, a custody battle. And school has also helped her cope with the shooting.
2: It's still a terrible subject, but it's not as terrible as it could be. It's really stressful, but then you have the people in your life that makes it better.
9: While she was recovering from her wound, school staff brought her food and helped pay her senior dues. Her friends helped explain classwork and cheered her up. And best of all, she started hearing back from colleges with acceptance letters. She laughs and remembers what she was focused on after she was
2: shot. What was in my bag was really important documents. I had to submit those so my transcripts would be sent off to the colleges. So the one thing I was thinking about was, I have to get back to school. I have to turn those in. You got shot and that was one of the things on your mind? A lot of people say that. (laughs) they were like, you got shot and you were worried about college applications. Yes, I was. Because the deadline was really close.
9: Shanika Glaspie just finished her first semester at Penn State, where she's studying engineering. I'm Kavitha Cardoza.
0: turn now to a man who has resolved to use his own challenges and hardships to help other men, men in prison. His mission? To use music to help inmates cope when they finally get released from jail. Late last year, Michael Martinez visited the Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, and brought us this story.
5: These are the sounds that define the early part of Wayne Kramer's life. The explosive guitar riffs he once played for the legendary rock band The MC5. But these days, Kramer begins many of his gigs on a different note, like one he played recently at the Patuxent Institution.
10: I am Wayne Kramer, and uh, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I'm a sober alcoholic and a clean drug addict. I'm known in the world mostly as a guitar player. But for a few years, I was known as 00180190, and I was a federal drug war prisoner.
5: Kramer spent two of the prime years of his life locked up in a federal prison in Kentucky on drug charges. He still finds himself going in and out of American prisons. But what brings him behind bars now is a nonprofit he started called Jail Guitar Doors USA, which donates guitars for inmates to use for rehabilitative therapy. He tells inmates they shouldn't see the guitars as gifts, that the people who donated them want offenders to know someone believes in them while they're in a place where it's easy to feel worthless.
10: They know you want to change for the better that you want to come out, and you're going to come out, and you're going to rejoin your friends and family. You're going to rejoin us out in the world, and you're going to live next door to me. And and we want you to be part of the deal. We want you to be part of the world. We want you to participate in the world. And we know that music and art in general is one of the few things that can touch people in their heart. It can change you fundamentally.
5: Kramer treats the inmates at Patuxent to an intimate performance inside its library. Bookshelves and posters line the walls in what might pass for a Spartan junior high school reading room. But he plays one song, made famous by country singer and former San Quentin inmate Merle Haggard, that evokes classic jailhouse images.
10: The warden walked a prisoner down the hallway to his doom.
5: Prison is a subject that comes up over and over again in the American songbook, from Lead Belly to Johnny Cash. Randall Nero is in charge at Patuxent. He says music should be a part of how inmates change their behavior and ultimately return to society.
11: We really stress for the offenders the need to go ahead and engage in what I would say is pro-social behavior. And clearly being part of the music program at Batuxin allows them to both uh, develop an appropriate expression of their affect, and also we have the group as their participation is pro-social behavior.
5: The inmates who come to hear Kramer are certainly social. They jump in an invitation to pick up their own guitars for a jam session. One inmate from Alabama in particular turns every head in the room with his soloing ability. But Kramer makes it clear that his challenge to the inmates is to use the guitars for more than jamming. He wants them to tell their stories through music.
10: And the day's gonna come where things aren't gonna, you're gonna be out and things aren't gonna go your way. And you're gonna have a choice to make. You could pick up your pistol or you could pick up your guitar. I'm suggesting you try the guitar this time.
5: That message hits home particularly hard for artist Bartholo, a 47 year old inmate doing time on an armed robbery charge. He plays guitar in his cell every day at Patuxent, where he says he's written dozens of songs and intends to write more.
10: Some turn to whiskey, some turn to dope,
8: but they're somebody's daughter, so don't give up hope.
5: Songs like Fallen Angels, which Bartholow wrote in 1999, when the mother of his son was struggling with drug addiction. He says the song has taken on new meaning for him now that he's incarcerated.
8: doves, cast from grace.
10: No matter your current situation, you can do anything. Anyone can do anything if you, if you really want to do it. and No matter, you could be in jail, you could be on drugs. If you want to change yourself and, and turn things around, you can do it. I believe that.
5: Bartholow, who's played in bands before, has dreams of becoming a professional songwriter when he eventually gets out of prison. He keeps journals of lyrics and chord progressions, songs that not only tell his personal story, but also reflect hope. So it only makes sense that Bartholo sings right along with Kramer when he plays one of Bob Marley's most famous songs for the inmates at Patuxent. The chorus they all join, whether they know the words or not. These
10: songs of freedom, all I ever had redemption
5: on I'm Michael Martinez.
10: Redemption song. Redemption
0: You can hear more of artist Bartholo's original song, Fallen Angels, on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, how one woman's resolve helped keep some historic D.C. neighborhoods highway free.
3: You move into a a new condo in a neighborhood and you think, well, this, you know, I like this place. It never occurred to them that it was a battle royal (laughs) for them to be able to live here at all.
0: That story and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're marking the start of the new year with a show about resolutions. We first aired this next story last January as part of our series, Eating in the Embassy, in which we visit with chefs and dignitaries at various embassies with the food blog Eater DC. And if you're resolving not so much to eat better this year, but to eat more boldly, then you might want to head to northwest Washington inside the House of Sweden. Great place, by the way. Yeah, quite nice to the Embassy of Iceland, or one door down, I guess I should say.
12: So the embassy is literally next door. And the way it works is that we made a lease with the House of Sweden, so we have two units.
0: We're in the unit that's set up as a residence for this guy.
12: My name is Erlinger Erlingsson. I'm a counselor at the Embassy of Iceland in D.C. have been in D.C. for about nine months.
0: And today, eater D.C.'s Missy Frederick and I are here to taste some Icelandic cuisine. Though the way Erlinger explains it... We don't
12: have a strongly developed concept of Icelandic cuisine.
0: See, the Vikings first settled Iceland in the 9th century.
12: And they were migrants from Norway, so that's sort of our origin and a lot of our culture is is very Norse.
0: After the Vikings, Iceland was independent for a while.
12: And then there was a civil war in Iceland in the 13th, 14th century.
0: Then Iceland came under the rule of Norway.
12: And then Norway came under the rule of Denmark and so we became a Danish holding for, for several centuries.
0: So Erlinger says his country's cuisine is kind of a conglomeration of all these Scandinavian cultures. But all the same, the island a nation of 320,000 people does serve up plenty of things it can call its own, like the first item Erlinger serves me and Missy,
12: haddock which literally translated is hard fish, and you, you traditionally use uh, haddock that gets hung up and dried outdoors, preferably. So it's I, I refer to it as similar to jerky or something like that.
0: Now, when you bite into the fish jerky, it's kind of well, it's kind
12: of hard to chew. And it takes a minute for it to sort of reconstitute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to work on. It.
3: It's tough. It's not a first date Good. <laughs>
0: But eventually it softens up and this really potent, salty, fishy flavor kicks in.
2: I like it more than I would have expected hearing the phrase fish jerky. I'll, I'll give it that much for sure. Okay. So we think yeah. our marketing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Another Icelandic item Erlinger has us try. That is so tasty. Mm. And the texture, texture. Right? is on the sweeter side. It's called skier.
12: It's essentially like an Icelandic relative of Greek yogurt. Technically it's a cheese, sort of a filtered uh, dairy product, and it, it has a sort of a medium-thick texture.
0: skyr has been around since the Vikings and has three times the protein of regular yogurt. And speaking of protein, Icelandic cuisine is loaded with the stuff, mainly because Iceland...
12: It's about the size of Ireland, and I think it's quite close to the size of Virginia.
0: ...doesn't have a lot of great cropland.
12: Mostly the interior of, of the island is volcanic deserts and mountains and glaciers and stuff.
0: So the country produces a lot of dairy, fish, and something Erlinger says he's been missing ever since he came to the States.
12: I do miss the lamb. I think our lamb is quite special. So all our sheep, which were, were originally brought over by the Vikings when they settled Iceland, they're not penned in or not restricted in terms of movement. So they're, they're practically like wild sheep in that sense.
0: And while you can serve Icelandic lamb roasted or grilled or smoked, one of Erlinger's favorite ways to eat it is a little faster.
12: Iceland even has its own uh, fast food. There's a hot dog stand in Reykjavik known as the town's best hot dogs, or Bayern bestu and they're lamb hot dogs in a soft white bun, usually with both uh, raw onion and uh, roasted onion, ketchup, mustard, and then uh, mayonnaise relish.
0: Unless that is, you're the 42nd president of the United States.
12: Bill Clinton, when he was in Iceland in 2004... Uh, I was working, actually, for the U.S. Embassy at the time in Reykjavik, and so we were doing a walkabout, and and my deputy chief of mission then decided, oh, we should stop there and have a hot dog. So, you know, there's a famous order at that hot dog stand. You can have a hot dog only with mustard, which is known as the Clinton.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we've covered a few different Icelandic foods. Let's turn now to beverages, specifically boozy beverages. Interesting thing about alcohol in Iceland. Prohibition started in 1915 and basically didn't end until 1989.
12: But then since then, we've sort of come a long way. Beer initially was all imported, and now we've got a lot more microbrewery-style things going on. And they've done pretty well in competitions, even internationally. They've gotten some awards.
0: The can Erlinger serves to me and Missy contains one of those award-winning brews.
12: Ales good literally means Ales gold, so that's like their premium lager. Yes. We'll do sampling portions. Great. But there's more.
0: He also busts out a bottle of what may be Iceland's most famous drink, Brennivín, It's called the Black Death
12: sometimes. It's another word for it.
0: You make Brennivín from fermented potato mash and caraway seeds. And with an alcohol content of 37.5%, the stuff is strong. That's why, legend has it, it was developed to wash down something Icelanders have been eating for centuries.
12: Haukart, which is Icelandic for shark. Iceland used to be extremely poor until the middle of the 20th century, and so we were obliged to eat whatever we could get from the sea and, and on the hoof in Iceland.
0: So, with plenty of sharks in the sea, Icelanders began using the animals for oil and meat, which they'd cure and then ferment. For months and months and months.
12: And, yeah, some people like to say the, the reason for brandy vinn is you, you take tiny bites always off the shark, uh, and you need to wash it down and, sort of, and, and to sort of get the flavor quickly out of your mouth after you've, after you've had it.
0: Now, we're not eating any fermented shark here in Erlinger's apartment, but after our little feast of Icelandic goodness, what else to do but finish it off with a shot?
12: Bottoms our up. It's like toast to the bottom. <laughs> of black death. That'll warm you up.
0: We have plenty more about Icelandic cuisine over at MetroConnection.org, including a recipe for white chocolate skier pie. Plus, um, I actually paid a visit to Iceland not too long ago, and you can see a few photos from that trip on MetroConnection.org, too. We have all kinds of food up there, like those hot dogs Erlinger mentioned, and also um, geyser bread. You actually cook this stuff in the ground. No joke. And trust me, it is delicious. You can find all that and more on MetroConnection.org. Our next story on today's Resolutions show is about a woman who's spent half a century committed to saving D.C.'s historic neighborhoods. See, more than half a century ago, President Dwight Eisenhower kicked off a spree in America, a freeway building spree.
5: A road program
11: that will take this nation out of its antiquated shackles of secondary roads all over this country and give us the types of highways that we need for this great mass of
9: voters.
0: Eisenhower's interstate freeway system gave birth to the Capitol Beltway we know and uh, love today, but the plan also called for two inner beltways that would have paved over some of the oldest and most vibrant neighborhoods in the district. Needless to say, that prompted more than a few people to raise their voice in protest in the 1960s, and one of them was Anne Hughes Hargrove, who last year won a lifetime achievement award from the DC Historic Preservation Office. Jacob Fenston had the story then, and we bring it to you now. <laughs>
11: I'm meeting Anne Hargrove at the McDonald's on 18th Street and Columbia Road Northwest. Yes, are you Anne? <laughs> yes. This fast food restaurant in Adams Morgan is unusual. No drive through no roadside marquee. It's hidden inside an old arts and crafts brick mansion. McDonald's didn't buy the building out of a love of historic architecture.
3: Their intention was to tear it down.
11: The building, designed by renowned architect Waddy Wood, is still standing because Hargrove and other neighbors mounted a noisy campaign to save it. McDonald's eventually agreed to a compromise. They'd keep the building, even restoring it with brick matching the original.
3: But we found the brick and convinced the company to do it. It was kind of fun, actually.
11: Preserving a city's history is often made up of little battles like this, saving one building at a time. But there was one big fight in Hargrove's lifetime over the tangle of freeways envisioned across the district. We walked down bustling 18th Street toward Hargrove's house She moved here in the mid-1960s and fell in love with this neighborhood of quirky businesses and old buildings. But she soon learned of the plan that would change everything.
3: All of this was to be torn down, every bit of it. I can show you the plans. It really was amazing. They just really tear down everything.
11: Hargrove's house was built at the turn of the 20th century. The house and the whole block she lives on were slated to be raised to make way for freeway-centric urban renewal. Inside, her house is filled with stacks of papers and big rolled-up maps, the paperwork from a lifetime of historic preservation.
3: A lot of this stuff is so old. I think all of this is urban renewal. This is some land acquisition maps. Mm -hmm.
11: One freeway map shows the inner beltway, six lanes along New Hampshire Avenue through DuPont Circle, then across the city along U Street old neighborhoods that were part of the original federal city. Neighborhoods that today are among the district's most desirable and expensive.
3: It would have removed thousands of houses and thousands of people would have been displaced by it. So it's a horrendous thing to think of just in terms of the carnage of the people affected. But also it would have substantially changed the nature of the city.
11: In 1968, Congress authorized 38 miles of freeway within the 68-square-mile District of Columbia. In a city with no representation in Congress, the plan favored suburban commuters over urban residents. That spurred anti-freeway protests across the city, bringing together black and white, rich and poor.
3: Citizens organized more than I've ever seen citizens ever organize for any reason whatsoever, although they were tremendously well organized. What really saved it were the court cases.
11: In 1970, a new freeway bridge was already being built to extend I-66 across the Potomac into Georgetown when a court order halted construction. Officials hadn't gotten adequate public input from residents. They
3: won largely on technical grounds of that sort. When the freeways were being discussed,
11: I mean, it seems sort of visionary to see that this modern way of thinking, quote-unquote, was actually... Actually
3: not. I don't think it was sophisticated at all. People thought their neighborhood was going to come down. People thought their homes were going to be lost. People thought they were going to be kicked out of where they lived. That's what caused this much, much more than thinking of aesthetics... Of course, there are people who do, and people who all along have felt that these were neighborhoods worth preserving and keeping because they're special. They're nicely designed, they have good architecture, and they are reflective of the history. And it's a really nice way to live.
11: Do you think there's an issue that's analogous today to the freeways of, of, the, of the 1960s and 70s?
3: I don't think there's anything quite analogous but I think there is a complacency today about the world around us that we just sort of assume things are gonna to continue to be like they are now. You move into a condo, a new condo, in a neighborhood, and you think, Well, this is, you know, I like this place. It never occurred to them that it was a battle royal <laughs> for them to be able to live here at all.
11: Activists didn't win all the freeway battles. Southwest DC was among the earliest urban renewal projects in the mid-1950s. Thousands of residents were displaced to build I-395 and the new modern neighborhoods around it. For her part, Anne Hargrove didn't stop her work when the freeway fight ended. She served on lots of local preservation groups, including the Committee of 100 on the Federal City. And in the late 1970s, she helped draft the district's historic preservation law, which makes it much harder to tear down historic buildings. I'm Jacob Fenston.
0: So if you want to see what D.C. could have looked like, we have an image on our website of the proposed Three Sisters Bridge. The plan was halted by court order in 1970. You can check it out for yourself on our website, MetroConnection.org. Our last story today is about people resolving to reconnect local residents with a resource they've long been told to avoid, the Anacostia River. Jim Foster is the executive director of the Anacostia Watershed Society. In October, environment reporter Jonathan Wilson joined Foster out on the water to look at how far the river has come.
8: Jim Foster steps onto his pontoon boat at Bladensburg Waterfront Park and eases into the middle of the river. It's chilly, and it'll be at least another hour before the morning fog burns away, but we're not the only ones on the water. One high school rowing team glides by, and another is about to leave the dock. A man in a blue parka waves to Foster from some trees on the bank. He's getting ready to do some fishing, and a few egrets and a heron not far downstream have already been hunting the shallows for hours. It isn't exactly bustling, but the truth is, at daybreak, the Anacostia is busier than you might expect. This
13: is, uh, you know, not what I think a lot of people think when they hear the Anacostia. They think, you know, don't go there, that river's dirty. It's just a, a very negative frame of reference about the river. And, you know, somewhat rightfully so. You know, for two generations we've told people, don't go there, that river's dirty.
8: And there is trash here. Foster apologizes four or five times over the course of the morning almost as if he sees the Anacostia as his living room strewn with clutter as guests arrive. Recent rains have made things worse washing more litter downstream but the mess is mostly made up of small items and Foster says that's different than it was in the not so distant past. Anacostia Watershed Society has been working out here for coming up on 25 years and uh, the original stuff was refrigerators, tires. Foster says it's a good sign that large items like those are becoming more rare. It means the actual dumping of trash into the river is mostly a thing of the past. Today what you're seeing
13: are water bottles and soda bottles and styrofoam. It's, it's the detritus of convenient life. This is stuff that is completely manageable at the source. And so you're seeing the mayor just came out with this sustainability plan and part of it is he wants to do a ban on styrofoam. Well, it's the result of seeing stuff like this, the styrofoam floating around in here from people going out to a restaurant, you know, taking, getting
8: takey-outy and eating it in the package, getting away from them. He argues that bottle deposit laws would be another big step in the right direction. They put a value on bottle plastic, forcing manufacturers to pay back people who recycle the bottles, thereby incentivizing bottle collection. Beverage companies bristle at the prospect. In other states that have bottle deposit legislation, they're
13: collecting about 90 percent of that waste stream. In Maryland here, with recycling, we're only collecting about 20 to 22 percent of the waste stream. It's a huge
8: difference. About a mile south of the Maryland-DC line, Foster swings his pontoon boat into a narrow channel on the eastern side of the river. And suddenly, the waterway opens up into the small lake that is Kenilworth Marsh. The marsh is comprised of 30 acres of wetland, restored to relative health in the early 1990s by the Army Corps of Engineers and the National Park Service. The fog is still with us, but even without it, it would be nearly impossible to tell we're in the middle of an urban capital.
13: The one thing I want to impress upon you is you're in the heart of Washington, D.C. Is this unbelievable?
8: Foster motors the boat back onto the main river, and four Canada geese paddle out of the way before taking wing. He says overpopulation of geese has become a real problem on the Anacostia since the geese feed on young wetland plants, hampering restoration efforts. Foster points to two isolated circles of vegetation near the banks. They're surrounded by mesh fencing that rises about a foot out of the water. Foster says it's a technique that his organization is using with the help of local high school volunteers. Look how lush the growth is inside the fencing. And
13: it's about six inches deep outside there, right there, and it's just bare mud flat. And if you needed any more proof about how the geese are tearing up the wetland,
8: the emerging wetland plants, you don't need to look any further than those two circles right there. A bigger problem is the fact that raw sewage still flows into the Anacostia whenever heavy rains overtax the local pipe system. It's an issue that Foster hopes will be largely remedied by the Anacostia Water Tunnel, a massive project that broke ground in the spring. Once the uh, district finishes the Anacostia Tunnel, 13 miles long, 100 feet deep,
13: 28 feet in diameter, that's uh, going to store all the overflow from the combined
8: sewers, we're going to see an incredible reduction in, in sewage to the river. Cleaner water and lush wetlands aren't all that Foster is after. He says a thriving Anacostia River could very well become the central park of the nation's capital. What we've done is we've completely disconnected people from this river, and they don't come here. There's five and a half million people that live within 30-some miles of here or whatever. This, This place should be crazy. For now, at least, the craziest thing about the Anacostia might be how its beauty, however diminished after years of mistreatment, can still shine through the fog. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
0: You can see photos of Jonathan's boat ride on the Anacostia on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Capita Cardoza, and Jonathan Wilson, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Our editorial assistant is Lauren Landau. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on the story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a brand new show about wealth. We'll look at the changing relationship between wealth and power in Washington, and we'll find out why some of the district's one percenters say they should be taxed more. Plus, we'll consider how the concentration of wealth in certain zip codes affects our region as a whole. And we'll look at our shifting housing market and hear about a new model that may help people avoid foreclosure. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.